So like I said, we are continuing our study, finishing actually this week our summer study in the book of Acts. Specifically, we've been looking at chapters 8 through 12, the very first stages of the expansion of the Christian church in the first century. And at this point in the book of Acts, after we finish chapter 12, the narrative shifts a little bit and it begins to focus on the various missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. But before Luke, who is the author of Acts, before he shifts to Paul's missionary journeys, he, ex- he relates to us this extended story that we're going to read about Peter and King Herod. Now, it's rather long, and so because of that, I'm going to encourage you to stay seated while I read it this week, but I still want you to focus on what's being said. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can turn to page 1171 in one of the blue Bibles that are in the chair racks. You can look at it there. It'll also be up on the on the screen behind me, but let's read this, and when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord. And invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. So Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. 
On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. There, um, there was an old Saturday morning Disney cartoon called Recess. It, uh, it ran from 1997 to 2001. I think it still makes some of the syndication rounds. And it's, um, it's a typical elementary school cartoon. You know, Recess is called Recess. A typical elementary school cartoon where the kids are kind of cute but largely rude and disrespectful and it's supposed to be funny, that kind of that cartoon. Nonetheless, in, even in its irreverent kind of way, it actually does capture many of the truths, many of the ups and downs of the humorous stereotypes of what elementary school life is like from the perspective of a, of a kid. And when you have 65 episodes over five years about an elementary school and the elementary school kids, you have to have at least one episode, episode that is about that, uh, that thing that they call principal for a day. I don't know if all schools do it, but, but a lot of schools will do this thing where they call principal for a day. And it's a practice that, that, that where you choose one student among the elementary school, and they have to, you know, they, they either, you know, get dressed up in, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a nice kind of business kind of attire, and they act as the, the principal for the day. Now, you know, in real life when this happens, the student has no actual power. It's just a day when they walk around with the principal and they see what, you know, what he or she does on a daily basis. But in the Disney cartoon, it's, I mean, it's from the perspective of a kid. It's every kid's fantasy. Because TJ, who is one of the kids in this, uh, you know, in, this, in this school, he's made principal for the day. And he gets, you know, and it's backed by the town charter, he gets to decide everything that happens. He's really in charge. He gets to make all the rules. And he makes all the rules that you would expect a wise guy kid would make. He says you can chew as much gum as you like. You can, you can do whatever you want. There's no homework, all-day recess, pizza and all-you-can-eat cookies for lunch. It's all the stuff that a stereotypical kid would kind of rule if he were in charge of the school for a day. And it leads to predictable chaos, as you would also expect. But what's fascinating, actually, is that you get to watch in TJ this desire for power begin to take hold in him. One of the students inevitably breaks. I mean, he didn't have a whole lot of rules, but he made a couple of rules. And one of the students eventually breaks one of the rules that he makes. And he kind of did it to kind of see if his old pal TJ would let him off the hook, because, you know, TJ's a buddy. But TJ doesn't. TJ gives him detention. And TJ, after he's done and the kid goes away, he looks kind of sad. And so the everyday adult principal kind of comes in and says, it's okay. He said, I remember the first time I had to give a detention to, and it took me, took me a little while to calm down after that. And TJ looks back at him and says, no, you don't understand. I liked it. He liked it. In every human heart, there is a battle for supremacy for who will be in charge, for who will rule, who will be the principal, who will be king. In fact, the story of humanity is a, is a collision of kings. And by that, I mean our desire to rule and to order our lives and then tell others what they need to do to live by our standards. That desire is at the heart of all human conflict throughout all the history of the world. And it is at the heart of the Bible's story of conflict between God and, 
humanity. We are given the job, as created in His image, we're given the job of shadow principle, in a sense. Right? Made in His image and invited to follow Him around and, and to follow His lead and, and, and follow His example. But instead, what we do is we find that we actually like the principal's chair better. We prefer that to the chair of the student. We like the power that we think it affords us, and we prefer the throne. Herod preferred the throne, and he exercised his authority with absolute ruthlessness. And it seems very much to everyone who might be watching that he is absolutely in charge. And it seems as if the people love it. They love him. They cheer for him. But this account from Acts chapter 12 demonstrates that he actually really is the one who is in chains imprisoned by his own arrogance in demanding the throne. And the one who starts in chains, Peter, is the one who gets to go free. Because no matter what men pretend or men claim, there is only one true king. So let's walk through what we read, section by section, and see how this works out. Start with verses 1 and 5. This is what I call the rage. Right? Let's talk a little bit about this Herod. Herod goes into a rage. Now, we, talk, we need to talk about Herod because the, 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 the title King Herod pops up a lot in the New Testament, but it's not always talking about the same guy. The Herod dynasty is actually, it's a, it's a long, complicated, very fascinating, and almost Netflix miniseries worthy kind of a story. The dynasty through the generations of this family. But let's, the, the, the Herod here, the King Herod here in Acts chapter 12 is King Herod Agrippa I. Now, he was the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was the Herod who rebuilt the temple, the Herod who was king when Jesus was born, the Herod who had all the little children killed. That Herod, that was Herod the Great. Now, after Herod the Great, well, there was somebody short in the meantime, but after Herod the Great, we have his nephew, Herod the Great's uh, Herod Antipas. Actually, no, Herod Antipas was after Herod the Great, but Herod Antipas was Herod Agrippa's uncle. It gets very confusing. So Herod Antipas is the Herod that you remember beheading John the Baptist, the one who was king of Judea and that region when Jesus was tried, Herod Antipas. His nephew is the Herod that we read about here in Acts chapter 12, King Herod Agrippa I. Right? So you've got a number of Herods that we see in the, in the Bible. Herod the Great, the Herod when Jesus was born. Herod Antipas, the Herod when Jesus was tried and the one who killed John the Baptist. And Herod Agrippa, the Herod here that puts Peter into, into prison. And there's more that come later in Acts, but we'll just, we'll just stop there. That's the King Herod that we're talking about. And you see that he flies into a rage against the Christians. And it was probably a political ploy on his part. It's possible that he didn't have anything really against the Christians. He just liked being in power. And he realized that the best way to stay in power and to please his primary constituency, the Jewish people, was to rage against the Christians because the Christians were starting to become a threat. And so he, he decides that he's going to go after the church. He's going to fly into a rage against the church. And he goes right to the top. He kills James, the brother of John. This was not the James who wrote the book of James. That's Jesus' brother. This is the James who was the, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, one of the original disciples of Jesus. He kills that James. You couldn't get much higher on the, the, the chain of important disciples than James. Of course, then there's also Peter. <laughs> and when Herod saw the Jewish leaders liked that he had killed James, he, he, he decides to arrest Peter as well. And the only reason why Peter is still alive at this point, why he isn't dead yet, it seems 
is that he was arrested during the Passover feast. It says during the days of the unleavened bread. And the historians and the commentators point out that it was a long-standing practice to try to avoid executions during the Holy Week that followed the Passover feast. So Peter's in prison, and he's awaiting his trial, which will result probably, almost certainly, in his execution. And he's pretty heavily guarded. Herod places, it says, four squads of soldiers to, to guard him. That's probably about 16, four at a time for each of the four shifts of the night, so they could kind of rotate through. Two of them, we know, are chained to Peter or right next to Peter, two probably the sentries guarding the, guarding the door. So pretty secure, right? You look at it, you say, who's in charge here? Who's got the power? Right? You got King Herod. He's, he's here. He's sitting on the throne, right? He's the one with the soldiers under his command. He's the one who's sleeping comfortably while he shows those Christians and demonstrates to the Jewish leaders while he shows them who's the boss. So it would seem. And so it would often seem to us, I suppose. Right? The, the world around us seems to rage at times. You might even look at the world around us right now and say the world seems to be raging, doesn't it? Asserting its authority, the kings of this world, the authorities, the government, the authorities in commerce, the authorities in entertainment, all of them shake their fist at, at any authority but their own and claim to be in charge. And it might seem from an outward perspective that they are. And we could be tempted to fear. <laughs> this is the end. Things are so bad for Christians, they've never been this bad. Well, actually, I mean, you can make an argument. They have. Actually, right here, <laughs> you could say, I don't know, this looks like it was pretty bad doesn't mean that we should pretend that things that aren't bad are, or things that are bad aren't bad. We should. We should recognize them. It just means that we shouldn't be fooled by arrogant pretender kings who think they're in charge of everything when in reality they're actually in charge of nothing. And it doesn't mean that we sit idly by when we see the nations and the leaders raging against things that they ought not to be raging against. We live in a nation actually here where we've been afforded a degree of participation, where we have a say in the government. We should exercise those influences in the marketplace. We should act upon our rights and our opportunities. But at the end of the day, your hope can't be in a false promise that things would only be automatically fixed if only someone made you or someone you like principal for a day. It won't work. The only real fix is recognizing that there's a greater king to whom we can appeal. And that's what happens. That's what the, that's what the, the, ch the church was doing. And that's what leads us into point number two, verses 6 to 11. You see the rescue. The rescue actually really begins in verse 5. That's the foundation. It says, Peter, it says in verse 5, Peter was kept in prison by earnest prayer for him being made to God by the church. Right Now, note the, note the very intended stark contrast of what's going on here. Right? Peter's in prison. King Herod, whose authority was backed by the Roman Empire, soldiers, swords, and shackles. That's what he had. Big iron gates. That's who you have in one corner. In the other corner, you've got a small cast, a small group of outcasts hiding behind locked doors with no swords, no power, and no plan except, but, and this is the big but, except prayer to God, who happens to be, oh, I don't know, the creator and the ruler of the universe. That's what the church is doing. They're going to him. Now, what's Peter doing? It's the night before he's going to be brought before Herod, presumably condemned to the same fate as his buddy James, and what's he doing? He's sleeping between two soldiers, which is pretty amazing, actually, as I thought about it initially, because I'd probably be an anxious wreck the night before I'm about to be executed. Peter, he's sleeping. But remember what Peter's been through. 
He's seen Jesus die and rise again from the dead. He's seen God bring whole crowds of people to to faith in an instant. He's been used personally by God to heal people and to raise them from the dead. So he knows that if he dies, he's going to be with Jesus. So his logic kind of makes sense. Going to see Jesus tomorrow. Going to be a big day. Better get some rest. That's what he's doing. One way or the other, the detail that Peter is sleeping is an important detail for the story because it shows conclusively and without any doubt that Peter is not responsible for anything that happens next. You probably you think, you know, The Great Escape, or you think of some like, that's actually a movie, it's the title of the sermon, but I mean The Great Escape, Steve McQueen, like you think of all like the Great Escape prison break movies that are out there, right? They all start with a master plan. It's either the person on the inside who has a master plan and they escape, or it's some team of people from the outside and they have a master plan and they break them out, but it always starts with a plan, and in some cases a team of people to help the people on the inside execute the elaborate plan. Peter's got no plan. He's asleep. But God has a plan. And that's the point. Part of the point of Peter sleeping. Right? This is all God's doing. Peter is sleeping. The angel shows up, turns on the lights, and the guards don't notice. Obviously, the angel put them to sleep too. But Peter, right? he's so asleep, the angel has to kick him in the side to wake him up. Right? He strikes Peter on the side and says, get up, quickly, let's go. The chains fall off Peter. The angel tells him to get dressed and follow him out. And out they go, past the guard, through the gate, into the city. And through the whole thing, Peter is like in this half-trance-like state. It's only when they get out into the city that the angel leaves him and Peter comes to himself, it says. He wakes up, he gets it, and he says, now I get it. And now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. See, that was part of the point. There is absolutely no doubt. He wanted Peter to be sure, he wanted the church to be sure, he, wanted, he wants us to be sure that this rescue is all of him. Peter does two things. He gives God the credit, and he also notes, interestingly enough, he says, I know that the Lord has sent me and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people we're expecting. Right? So he knows, one, that God gets all the credit. Two, he also knows that it's going to be a very interesting morning for Herod and the guards and the Jewish people, which leads us to the next point. What's the result of the rescue? Right? The response, verses 12 to 19. Two responses here. The first response is the response of the church. Remember what they're doing. They're praying. They're praying earnestly, it says. Right? Big points for that. Give the church points for that. Right? They, they were still praying. Even though their prayers, presumably they had been praying for James too. Right? Even though their prayers for James didn't, an, didn't get answered the way that they had probably intended them to be answered. But, but big points for the church. They're still praying. They're still praying for Peter. Say, okay, God, we understand. That's fine. We trust you. We don't know why James had to get killed, but we're still going to pray for Peter. We're not going to give up. And they're doing that. They're praying. They're praying hard. And they're in the house of this woman, Mary, who was the the mother of Mark. That's the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And that's where Peter heads when he gets out of prison. He heads to Mary's house. That's where he assumes the church will be. But the response, the response of the church is one of the most classic, like, comic relief scenes in the Bible. Because they're praying, they're praying earnestly, remember. And then there's a knock at the door. And they send the servant girl, Rhoda, to go answer. Rhoda, would you answer that? I don't know who's trying to bother us in the middle of the night, but but can't they see that we're trying to pray here for Peter's escape, for Peter to get to get out, to rescue people? We're trying to pray for Peter for Pete's sake. Rhoda, would you go handle who's at the door? So Rhoda goes to the door. And she doesn't open it, presumably. I mean, safety mechanism, right? Right? 
Young girl, servant girl, don't open the door, right? Who is it? Peter says, it's me, it's Peter. She recognizes his voice. She's ecstatic. She runs off. She leaves him at the door, door locked. He's standing outside. Um, this is probably the first place they'll look. Let me in. She runs and she goes to tell them. And, and forgive Rhoda, I mean, for her, for her enthusiasm. It says it's inner joy. She's so excited. It's Peter. He's out of jail. He's at the door. And she rushes into the prayer room. Right? And they say, who is it? And she says, it's Peter. And they say, no, you're out of your mind. Peter's in prison. That's why we're praying, remember? Right, that's why they're praying. Isn't that hilarious? They're praying to God for Peter's release, and Peter actually shows up, and they can't believe it. They doubt it from the beginning. This is actually why they say they're praying. God answers it, and they, and they, and they, and they can't believe it. Now, finally, they let Peter in. He tells them everything, which... You know, which, which, which helps them understand some of the backstory, and then he leaves, he goes somewhere else, which makes sense because, again, after all, this is the most logical place for Herod to begin his search. Now, that's the reaction from the church. Initial skepticism and then amazement. The other reaction is Herod's reaction, and as you probably would expect, when Herod wakes up the next morning, he finds out about this, he's not that happy. He can't find Peter. There's no good explanation or excuse from the soldiers. And so he goes back into rage mode, and he has all the guards executed, and he leaves town in disgust. I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. That's point number three, the reaction, or the reactions. Now, what I want us to see is that these reactions make sense, and we can laugh at them from afar, and we can kind of distance ourselves from both of the reactions, but both of these ought to be fairly relatable. The church's reaction is relatable. Think about this. When you pray for something, even earnestly, how many times do you not actually believe that God, practically speaking, has the power to do something that big for your prayers, right? Or, or you believe that He's powerful enough at least in theory, but you don't actually believe, at least again, practically speaking, you might not say it aloud, but you might not actually believe that he cares enough to exercise that power on your behalf. And you're almost afraid of being silly by asking for too much because you get your hopes up too high, then there's going to be a letdown, and so you might as well just not ask for all that much because after all, like he probably actually isn't going to give you what you're asking for. That was the reaction of the church. They were praying, they were praying earnestly, but they, it was beyond their imagination that God might actually do it. How many times do we pray that way too? So I think there's something we can relate to there. There is actually something also very relatable about Herod's reaction too. Herod was attempting to be in control. He was trying to exercise his kingly prerogative, and it didn't work out. It didn't work out the way that, it, that, that he wanted. And it made him very, very cranky. Well, what happens in your life when you try to run things do things your way, and it doesn't happen your way, what happens when it doesn't work? When your attempts to run things runs up against God's attempts to run things, and God intervenes and says, no, we're going to do it this way, and you get frustrated, and you get cranky. I know I do. Right? So much of our crankiness is when we are behaving like spoiled, frustrated kings who don't get our way. Now, I'm not trying to say that we're all as bad as King Herod was. I'm just saying that you should recognize in yourself enough of that impulse to be a king in your own life and relate enough to the frustration that happens when God actually intervenes to remind you who's in charge. That's the reaction and how I think we can relate to it. Now, lastly, fourth point, verses 20 to 25, the robes. That's what I call it because Herod dons this magnificent robe. Now, lots of preachers... Lots of commentators 
don't group these verses with the verses in the first part of chapter 12. In other words, if they're writing chapters that are commentary, they'll have a separate chapter on these verses from the, from the first verses of chapter 12. Or lots of preachers, when they're preaching through the book of Acts, will do one sermon on verses 1 to 19 and then another sermon on verses 20 to 25. And that's fine. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to criticize. But what I want us to see actually is here... Seeing all of chapter 12 as a continuity is not just so that I can finish up the sermon series for the summer in the book of Acts in one week when I was behind. No, that's not the reason. The reason actually is because there is a logical connection between what happens in the end of chapter 12 and what happens at the, at the beginning, even though it's a very different scene. Because we see in this scene from verses 20 to 25, the result of Herod's continued insistence that he is the true principal of the school. The occasion that happens that brings this out is a dispute that Herod is, is having with two of the main, the two biggest, largest, most prominent Phoenician trading cities, Tyre and, and Sidon. And the Phoenicians seem very concerned about this dispute that's going on and they want to smooth things over with Herod because it says they depended on Herod's country for food. They were, they were not in the power seat here in this trade relationship. And so they're very concerned. They send word to the uh, to, the, to, to the servants in the king's household. They arrange a meeting, and, and, and Herod welcomes these trade ambassadors with a great public reception, right, this big spectacle of, of his power and his greatness. And it's quite a show. And he, he seats himself on the royal throne, and he makes a great speech, and he's wearing these robes. And the Jewish historian Josephus actually writes about this event, this exact event, in a lot more detail. He, he wrote a, a book, a series of of, uh, of, of, of books and, and, uh, and documents called the Antiquities of the Jews. And he writes about this. He says that Herod's royal robes that day were made of a woven silver that actually sparkled in the sunlight. There, there was literal silver so that when the sun hit it, it reflected. He, he literally glowed. And the crowds were wowed. We see that in Luke's account here. The great spectacle, the pageantry. Herod actually literally shining before them. And that's why they're shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod, he's just, he's just eating it up. That's right. Your principal. Here I am. Bow down. He's loving it. He's taking all the glory for himself. Now, and this is why the logical connection with the rest of chapter 12. Note the contrast between Herod's reaction to people calling him a god to Peter, who is in the first part of chapter 12. Peter's reaction when people began to worship him back in chapter 10. Remember in chapter 10? Peter enters into Cornelius' house. And all the people fall down at, their, at his feet, it says, and they worship him. It says, it's, it says that they, they bow down and they start to worship him. And Peter says, stand up. I'm a man just like you. See the contrast? Peter versus Herod. Peter recognizes who the real principle is. He gives glory to God, the true king. Herod takes the glory for himself. He did not give God the glory, it says. And that's why God strikes him down. Now, various opinions on what medically was going on here, but whether it was a heart attack or a burst appendix followed by a slow, painful death from infection, bacterial infection, whatever it was, whatever happened, it, it, it's clear it was not pleasant. What's important, though, is the theological perspective that Luke offers. This is not just a random happenstance. Like, it's just like, oh, he was there and he died. Like, oh, wow, isn't that interesting? They both happened. No, Luke draws the theological connection for us. The Lord struck him down. This is judgment, pure and simple. And it's a bit uncomfortable to, to read. Now, clearly, clearly uncomfortable for Herod, but uncomfortable for us as well. 
because the offense that was the occasion for the death sentence of Herod was not actually the killing of James. It wasn't actually the imprisoning of Peter. It wasn't all of the other thousands and thousands of evil, cruel things that Herod did. That's not the occasion for Herod being struck down and God exercising his judgment on him. Not all of the other commandments he's broken. That's not what, the capital offense, what, what, what becomes the, 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 the moment, the instant when judgment is executed, what becomes the offense is that Herod is a glory thief. The Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He's a glory thief. Paul Tripp, who is an author, pastor, counselor, he's written extensively on the subject of God's glory and how our rebellious hunger for glory is what destroys and imprisons us. See, Herod was the real one in prison here. His search, his passion for his own glory is what imprisoned him. This is, what, this is how, how Paul Tripp puts it. It's a bit of an extended quote, but I want you to listen to this. Right? Paul Tripp says, The original design was for human beings to live in a glorious world and exist in perfect relational harmony with the glorious God. But sin corrupted the original design, and now you and I have the desire to live for ourselves. Instead of living for the glory of God, we try to steal that glory for ourselves. We're glory thieves. Tripp continues. He says, we demand to be in the center of our world. We take credit for what only God could produce. We want to be sovereign. We want others to worship us. We establish our own kingdom and punish those who break our laws. We tell ourselves that we're entitled to what we don't deserve, and we complain when we don't get whatever it is we want. It is, he says, a glory disaster. Now, that's the scariest thing here. The scariest thing is not that this so accurately sums up King Herod. It does, what Paul Tripp is saying. It does very accurately sum up King Herod. But that's not the scariest thing. The scariest thing is that it pretty accurately sums up me and you too. But of course, the chapter doesn't end there. The fate of the pretender principle and the counterfeit king is death. But, verse 24 says, the word of God increased and multiplied. What's that mean? It means, the word, it means the gospel. It means the message of Jesus, the, the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. It means that message continued to go forth. Peter would have remembered. Right? We should remember. He was sitting in prison at the feast of Passover waiting to be executed because supposedly the Jewish leaders didn't like the uncomfortable fact of someone desecrating the Passover with an execution. But you know, there was a guy whom Peter would have recalled because he was there, who was executed immediately after the Feast of Passover. And of course, that's Jesus. Why? Well, because he was the Passover lamb. And remember what Passover is all about. Right? It, was about a, it was about a pretender principle. The original Passover was about a pretender principle and a counterfeit king whose name was Pharaoh who stood in one corner with all the money and with all the power and with all the armies and dared to oppose the power of God. And God sent his judgment upon him. But of course, as flagrant as Pharaoh's glory stealing was, he wasn't in a different category than the Israelites. And so when the just judgment of death came upon the land and upon Egypt for its glory stealing, the only way for anyone to be spared from this 
righteous judgment was for something to place, take the place of those who were rightly condemned. That's what the lamb represented in that very first Passover thousands and thousands of years ago in Egypt when the people of Israel were enslaved. The blood of a lamb was spread over the doorpost. And the angel of death passed over those homes of the Israelites where that happened, not because the people in those homes were innocent of glory stealing, but because the people in those homes were covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. That's why Jesus died at Passover. And that's why Peter, himself a guilty rebel against God's way of doing things, that's why Peter goes free and Herod is condemned. Because the sacrifice of Jesus is his atonement and it is his cover. That's the gospel that is being proclaimed. That's the gospel that is being believed. That's the gospel that verse 24 says is increasing and multiplying. The book of Acts continues. It doesn't end in chapter 12. We're going to end our summer series here in chapter 12, but the book of Acts continues into Acts chapter 13, and it goes all the way through chapter 28. There's a lot more story. There's a lot more spread of the gospel, but there's even more than that, of course. And there's even more than the 28 chapters of Acts. The story has continued through all the centuries and continues today, and it will continue until Jesus returns and concludes the narrative of this age. In the meantime, what do we do? We continue on. We continue on with the confidence that the principal who heads our school and the king who rules over our world has not for a second relinquished control of that school to the forces of anarchy and chaos. I don't think I probably need to give a spoiler alert to a 20-year-old Disney Saturday morning cartoon, but at the end of that episode, that episode of, of Recess, you know, where TJ is briefly corrupted by the temptation to use the power of the principal for, for his own glory trip, in this surprise twist at the end of this cartoon episode, in his last act, being principal for the day, he calls the entire student body together in the, in the courtyard. And by this point, TJ had gotten pretty cruel, and so everyone was like wondering, like, is this going to be some last act of power glory trip on, on TJ's part? And instead, into the school courtyard rolls all these trucks with free ice cream and a hot dog cart and a snow cone cart and, and a big band, and they have this huge party. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphor of heaven for an elementary school kid. Free hot dogs and snow cones and... Friends, that's what awaits us at the end of the story. A feast and a celebration at the end of a very long and stressful day where it seems as if we've been under the rule of pretender principles and counterfeit kings. And it is a celebration at the end of the day that will not come because the principle had a change of mind, he had a change of heart because the principle repented, but because the ultimate principle has always had that as his plan. We're going to sing in a minute the song that we introduced last week for the first time. It's called Almost Home. And it fits the theme of where we end Acts chapter 12. Eyes forward, looking to the great celebration around the throne of the rightful king. This journey ours together unto that great forever. That's where we're going. What song anew we'll sing round that happy throne. Come faint of heart, we're almost home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for never relinquishing control of your schoolroom and your world. Thank you, Lord, that we can have confidence in that because we have seen you act in history and we can be confident in the end of the story. Pray, Lord, that we would have our eyes fixed 
on the end, even as we continue to live and focus on the present. Thank you, Lord, that you have promised us a home and that eternally speaking, we are almost there. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.